Hello, and welcome to the Brain Mastery Podcast, brought to you by ABI Wellness. This series features renowned experts on brain injury, brain health, and rehabilitation. Be sure to visit abiwellness.com for more resources. I want to welcome everybody back to the Brain Mastery Podcast. Today's topic is going to be very contemporary. We're going to be discussing clinical research. We're going to be discussing better understanding, how to ask better questions. And then once we've identified the question, okay, what do we then do to inform how to answer those sorts of questions? And how does that help to direct some of the next steps that we want to consider taking and asking? So today's um, topic, we're going to be looking into, you know, post ICU, we're going to be looking into neurology, and we're going to be looking into research, and we're going to be looking into innovation. So you're going to want to listen up today. Today's guest is Dr. Jim Jackson from Vanderbilt Medical Center in beautiful Nashville, Tennessee. And uh, we're going to be digging into many of these topics. So I'm going to encourage everybody to listen close and, and take notes if you need to. So Jim, thank you so, so much for joining us today. Really happy to be here with you. It's my pleasure. I can't wait to dig into these topics. Yeah, me too. Me too. So, I mean, tell me a little bit about you, Jim. I mean, what got you into uh, this work that you're in that's so interesting? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, you know, I trained to be a, a clinical psychologist and later a, a neuropsychologist, got additional training in rehabilitation as well, and um, had done a psychology residency at Vanderbilt. This is two decades ago, 21 years ago, I think. And uh, at the time, my colleague Wes Ely was just beginning to develop a research program that we were hoping, he was hoping, would focus on cognitive outcomes in people who were hospitalized or in the ICU. He was interested in what happened to those people cognitively. And I just happened to be the psychologist who was nearby. And... Um, I happen to need a job. And it was that simple. You know, he said, Jim, we get along pretty well. Uh, I think we could work well together. Why don't you join the team? And uh, I didn't plan on being a researcher, far from it. But I saw this as a great opportunity. And I joined this team. It was called the ICU Delirium Research Team. At the time, there were three or four of us who had a big vision for studying cognitive outcomes after intensive care. And in the last 20 years, that team of three or four has morphed into a team of 60 or 70 people. It's morphed into hundreds of publications. It's morphed into dozens and dozens of grants. We have close to 30 studies now that we're engaged in that support research that has something to do with cognitive outcomes after the ICU. And I think what really hooked me in this work uh, in the early stages, I wasn't quite sure how it would unfold, but in the early stages of our work, we were doing home visits. I was driving all over the Southeast to people's homes and um, around their dinner tables, you would hear their stories. You'd get done with the research assessment, just kick back and talk. And you'd begin to understand, I began to understand the profound impact of cognitive impairment on these folks who essentially had had brain injuries due to critical illness or the effects of hospitalization. They were one way when they got sick. When they left the hospital, they were completely different. They had no idea what had happened, but the wheels had clearly come off the car. And uh, our thought was we first had to try to characterize the nature of their problems. 
Once we did that, our hope was we could try to figure out a way to rehabilitate those. And, um, and we did the first one in fairly short order, published a lot of papers that described that about a third of ICU survivors have very meaningful cognitive problems. And that's become a mission to try to figure out how to prevent those problems and to figure out how to restore that function. That's the mission that we're on. Love it. I mean, that's part of what I think what brought us together was the curious nature of this question you have and this mission you have. And that our organization is really interested in a similar topic when we think about sort of post-acute neurological disorders, and then how do we deploy behavioral interventions to help those individuals engage in that and see what kind of effect that'll have. So uh, it makes a lot of sense in terms of how we became connected together. Um, So for people that are listening to this uh, here, these may be clinicians, these may be people that struggle following an ICU stay. You know, it must be an interesting position to be in because if we make it out of ICU, that's a win, right? So is it challenging for you to look at going to that next step when thinking, oh my goodness, I survived ICU? Right. It's a great point. I think what has happened for a long time on an institutional level is physicians and care providers, very sincere, they have said, gosh, you survived the ICU and wow, uh, you know, maybe we should be satisfied with that, right? Wasn't supposed to happen in some cases. It's a big win and it is a big win, but uh, lost in that is the idea that if you ask patients what's important to them, they won't say, they won't tell you, none of them will, that survival is the only thing that's important to them. You know, they will tell you that quality of life is important to them. And so we've tried really hard to shift the paradigm and the discussion about ICU survivorship and to say, yes, sure, it's great that you're alive, but if you're alive and you're profoundly cognitively impaired, how happy are you with that outcome? Probably not very. So um, there's a mandate to try to improve these outcomes and the outcome that patients consistently say in research and in interactions that they want to improve the most is cognition. Patients will consistently say, if my brain is working, but my body's bad, I can probably live with that. But if my body's fine and my brain is bad, I'm not seeing that as a win. And um, that's what patients say. That's what they consistently say. Beautiful. That's so well said. And uh, it makes a lot of sense. And we've definitely in our work seen a, a similar situation. So for people that are listening, then when you think about this, with all the research you've done, right, all the papers you've done, you know, one of the frustrations that I I mean, full disclosure, I have had in some of the work is um, many brilliant researchers kind of having a hard time finding a way to translate what they've learned into the research into practice. What are maybe some great stories of what you've seen over your time as to how a, a certain study that was asking a certain question help to inform and translate into clinical practice? It's a great question. I'll give you one example. There are many. So in the early days of me doing home visits, again, all over the Mid-South, Tennessee and Kentucky and Alabama, occasionally Georgia, I drive to patients' homes. I would observe things. And one day I drove to the home of a gentleman. This was probably 18 years ago now. So he was a World War II veteran. He's very old. And he had a sledgehammer. He was standing out by his car and he was trying to pound a dent 
out of the fender in his car. And I said, I'll just call him Mr. Johnson. Mr. Johnson, what is going on? And he said, you know, I had a car wreck. And he said, I've never had a car wreck before, but I had one. And um, boy, um, the lights started going off in my brain thinking, wow, our ICU survivors have visual spatial problems. They've got processing speed deficits. They've got problems with attention. I wonder if that might translate into problems driving. And sure enough, as I started visiting other patients, I started asking them, right? Have you had any car crashes? What's going on with this? And a lot of them started endorsing problems driving. And we learned that this was an issue that no one had really paid attention to at all. So we've raised it. We've published a little about it. We have a paper under review about it right now. And um, typically when we see patients in the IC recovery center at Vanderbilt, one of the key things we ask about is driving. So, you know, Stephen Covey, the famous performance strategist and brilliant coach, he had a famous quote, he had a lot of them, but he said, you know, imagine you're on a ladder and you're climbing up a ladder and you're really happy because you get to the top and you realize you're horrified, the ladder's leaning against the wrong wall, right? And so to us, to your point, we've got to answer questions in the context of the ladder leaning against the right wall. Like these have to be questions that people care about. And um, you figure out what people care about really is very old fashioned just by asking them, you know, just by observation. And I think sometimes that is lost. There's so much basic science work that often needs to be done before clinical research, a lot of bench science work. And I think that's important for sure. But in our case, Before we started doing that, we decided we wanted to start engaging with patients. We felt, frankly, like the situation was so urgent that we didn't have 10 years to spend with rats in the lab. We had to get out there and engage patients. And we've had so many experiences where they teach us something we integrated into our care of patients. And lo and behold, it works to improve their quality of life. So it's been a great ride that way. Beautiful. That's beautiful. You know, it reminds me, I, um, actually give me goosebumps. You know, one of the individuals who inspired me the most, and you know, some of my story in getting into right. this work, one of the individuals who really motivates me, I've met many brilliant doctors like yourself, uh, but the one who probably motivates me the most, well, both of them are people with lived experience with quite profound traumatic brain injury and ICU experience. And uh, the one individual had, you know, these remarkable, profound orthopedic issues and many different bone grafts and surgeries but he was left with these persisting cognitive issues. And uh, it's funny, you mentioned driving, that was his goal, but yet all the rehabilitation centers had suggested that would not be possible due to his cognitive impairment that persisted. But then doing, well, I, I mean, our program, this ABI wellness program that focuses on targeting these higher order cognitive functions, uh, during the time that he was in the program, he never informed us that this was his goal because he was obviously concerned that perhaps it would not work. But I remember getting a text message from him behind the wheel about, you know, six months in and he had above average cognition, therefore could now re-engage in driver retraining, which would obviously improve his activities at daily living and overall self-efficacy and quality of life. So this is something about you that, Jim, I got to ask, like, it's kind of rare for a researcher, well, you're more than a researcher, but to have such an action bias. And this is something around this topic of long COVID that I'm really curious about what drove you, like, what is it underneath you that gets you to, because one could 
pose an interesting question and collect the appropriate N and find the appropriate controls and then publish that, what leads you to actually translating that into action? Yeah, it's really an interesting question. I think of my dad, who's still alive. He's in his late 70s, but people would always talk about him being a bull in a china shop. And he was, and he is, you know, he's never one to sit still. And there's a downside to that for sure, but (laughs) there's a positive dimension to that. And I think, you know, when I think of my wife, Michelle and I, if we would have waited until the exact perfect time to get married, I I think we never would have gotten married. If we would have waited until the exact perfect time to have kids, I doubt we would have started our family. So that way of thinking that action bias has motivated me that if you wait for all of the stars to align, you're never going to get anything done. And I'm not so interested in that because I think working in and around the ICU, you recognize that life is short, right? Like life Mm -hmm. is really short. Even if you live to be 85 or 90 years old, life is short. So, uh, you know, without being reckless in the spirit of being thoughtful, the time to act is right now. And I've continued to be a little frustrated that not everyone shares that point of view. Now, I've got blind spots for sure. But one area we've seen this is in the area of support groups. Uh, We lead currently five support groups a week for ICU survivors and COVID survivors. And I thought that what would happen is we would be on the cusp of a wave of support groups that would develop really across the United States in-person via Zoom support groups because the need is so great. That hasn't really happened. And as we have talked about barriers to that, as I've talked to clinicians about why they haven't started those support groups, it really has been because they're not quite ready. And I have invited them to say, hey, maybe I don't need to be completely ready. Maybe I just need to jump in the deep end of the pool because I think that's where change happens. Beautiful. I think that's the best it's ever been said on this show. So, uh, you know, and I acknowledge you for that. So as you think about, you know, being this action first person in a world of academia where data collection needs to be pretty close to perfect, right? And it's a rigorous process, as I can appreciate. And it needs to be. It needs to be in order to reach a hypothesis uh, based on the question. What are some of the frustrations that you have around this work that can be, you kind of already hinted at some of it, but when you think about that, maybe around this topic, one of your newer projects that we're going to get into is looking at, yes, post-ICU, that's going to always be there as a part of your mission. But even, you know, along with that, this kind of long COVID population. There are frustrations. There are a lot of them and people may have them equally about me. I'm not (laughs) not sure, but I think one frustration, one broad frustration in this space has been that I think the medical community has had a definition of a brain injury that I think is a little wooden, a little literalistic and Mm -hmm. old fashioned. And that is, you know, if you're hit over the head with a hammer you've got a brain injury. If you survived a blast explosion in Iraq, you have a brain injury, maybe if you survived a stroke. But if you are hypoxic in the ICU for a good bit of time because you're on a mechanical ventilator, if you have neuroinflammation due to things like sepsis, you're clearly impaired as a result. For some reason, people have not framed that as a brain injury. Same with COVID. When I think of COVID, I think of so many patients we've interacted with, we send them for neuropsych testing. They routinely are a little bit abnormal, at least. 
I tend to think of it as a brain injury. So mm-hmm. the practical implication of not calling it that has been that no one refers these patients for rehabilitation because people with brain injuries get rehabilitation. You don't have one. And there's a human toll that is taken when people who are primed and ready for rehab are not sent for rehab. I think the longer you wait, the more salient that error is. So it's that framing that bothers me. I've been on a little bit of a brain injury kick on Twitter lately talking about the idea that we need to emphasize this in long COVID because rehabilitation is what we've seen helps people over and over and over and over again. 100%. And, you know, just to push back a little bit on that or push along with it is even in the brain injury side, you know, we're just starting to see, you know, that was where my quest began with some of these other pediatric populations that I saw in an educational setting where people had, you know, history of TBI and had not yet deployed neuroplastic cog rehab prior to deploying compensatory strategies-based rehab, therefore limiting the outcome trajectory of that individual. So, you know, that's what I'm really excited about and some of the work that you're doing and some of the questions you're asking around this. Because I think, I mean, obviously, I believe there's going to be some amazing learning that happens here, just remarkable learning. And that's why I'm excited to come along the journey with some of what you're doing together to try to help. Because a lot of these folks we've found in other you know, medical conditions will benefit from rehab. When they can engage in it, they will benefit from it. Yeah, they will. Um, You know, in the psychology realm, there's a frequent discussion about what the four or five or six features of healthy people are. What are the characteristics of psychologically healthy people? And one of those characteristics often is believed to be openness to experience, openness to experience. And I think as an academic, especially, it's very easy, and we see this a lot, to be sneering. You know, it's very easy to look down a little bit, be sneering and say, here are all the reasons why that is not going to work in a million years. And I think the truth is, when we see people whose lives have been transformed by brain training of various kinds, the proper response, while it might be a healthy skepticism, is not to be sneering. It is to be open to the experience of others and to recognize that lived experience is worth a lot and it is worth listening to. So this is a big priority of ours, which is let's believe these patients. Let's not discount wholesale what they have to say. And when there are exceptions to the rule, people who are thriving, who should be barely surviving, let's try to figure out what's going on with them and let's try to learn from them because they have a lot to tell us, I think. Again, could not have been better said, you know, like uh, one of the individuals I quite enjoy most of her stuff <laughs> is some of the the leadership uh, work of Brene Brown and, right. and the whole concept of, you know, listen most to those who are in the arena. And I think that's really useful when we think about this context, because I also have some level of appreciation for the sneering, not a lot, but some. If a study design isn't done properly, if right. a program is not controlled properly, if it's not dosed properly, if baseline is not proper then yeah, that could yield us a whole sense of false hope, which is wrong. Everybody in academia, I believe, at least started their career with a high degree of curiosity and then deployed the scientific method towards that curiosity and then let the cards fall where they may. Right. Yes, that's right. I think everyone started with that curiosity and perhaps everyone in academics still has it a bit, 
but uh, it's easy to lose that spark. And I think it's easy to be caught up in bureaucracy and the tyranny of the urgent. And I think it's also very possible as investigators advance in their careers, it's also very possible for them to be a step or two removed from the actual patients in the trenches, so to speak, because the people you're supervising increasingly work with them. You don't necessarily have that much interaction with them. And that's where the learning occurs. So for me, it's been really important that I continue to see patients and continue to engage patients and keep my hand on the pulse of things because you don't want to be far removed from that. And I think if ICU survivorship was a challenge for us, if that represented a situation where there's a gauntlet that was laid down, the problems represented by long COVID survivors are even much greater. You know, a conservative estimate would be that about 200 million people in the world have long COVID. Probably a third of those people have cognitive problems. That would be, you know, 70 million people. That's the number of people that live in yeah. Mexico City plus San Paulo plus New York City plus Los Angeles plus the entire state of Tennessee. I mean, you can go on and on and on yeah. and on. Yeah. And uh, it's really shocking when you start doing the math. Oh, I know. And uh, we've done the same thing here. And and always my big question is, okay, if this is an issue, then what do we do? Like, what's the plan? Oh, we're to take blood. We're taking blood biomarkers. Okay, that's useful. That's very good. What else are we going to do? Right. Uh, we're going to remote patient monitor. Okay, that's a cool term. What does that mean? Right. Exactly. <laughs> you know, yeah. that, that sounds interesting. We're going to deploy a digital therapeutic. Okay, interesting. What does that mean? We don't necessarily know yet. So that's something where our team is excited to lean in with you to learn and better understand how we can kind of support some of the work and research that's going on within your lab. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, you and I have talked off air about the fact that I wrote a book that is coming out on May 9th called Clearing the Fog from Surviving to Thriving with Long COVID, a practical guide. And that book is offering a way to think about coping with COVID as well as a lot of very practical strategies, including strategies about rehab. And I think the book was written in response to this gigantic challenge. And the only way that that gigantic challenge is going to be met is by using technologies and programs that can be scaled to impact large numbers of people. You know, there's no way we can take an assembly line and generate enough speech and language pathologists to treat cognitive impairment in 60 million people. So that's why I love the idea of technology. And we talk about it in Clearing the Fog, because in theory, at least, if people can engage technology in various ways, remotely or otherwise, then you can potentially put your hands on a lot of people at the same time and make a big impact that is never going to be made because of supply demand problems. So we're excited about technology for that reason. Well, you and me both. And that's why we've kind of developed a service platform that helps to support that, right? That's right. what we do is we, I love this word. It's almost like my word of the year, agency. Right. You know, providing a level of agency. If I'm an individual in Mexico City with these similar symptoms to another individual that may be in San Francisco and another couple of people who might be up in Ontario, Canada, right. with all the similar issues. Well, as you talk about the right speech language pathologist with the right assessments and tools cannot treat all four of those or 10 of those people at the same exactly. time. But technology can. 
and if the individual is motivated and has the capacity to engage, what a wonderful use of technology, you know? Exactly. Uh, yeah, I think it's easy to be a technology naysayer, and I've been guilty of that yep. at times. Me too. But but in this space, it can provide a bit of a revolution. It can offer a paradigm, and we've seen it in the same way that we've seen this happen with telehealth. You know, it's hard to conclude that there have been many positives to come out of the pandemic. But if there were one that I could circle with a red pen, it would be that telehealth had been sputtering for a long time. It had been a last option for many. And now telehealth is broadly available for literally almost everybody. And that's a great development. That's a great development for researchers like people on our team who can do remote neuropsychological testing via telehealth for people who don't live in urban centers who can finally receive cognitive rehabilitation via telehealth. Technology holds a lot of promise in the context of long COVID, and I'm very excited about it. Yeah, me me too. And uh, of course, full bias here. You know, our organization provides that sort of a solution. And we're just, what's beautiful is we're seeing it really work. You know, that's the best part of our work is we're able to see, you know, people who, as you know, you know, started in kind of learning differences and then only complex mild TBI, and then, oh, what about stroke, and then anoxic brain injury. And, you know, as somebody who also likes data and and also has enjoyed the odd label, (laughs) really generalizing that out, if I have these persisting symptoms, and here may be a tool that we could use either on or off label, well, it'd be interesting to look at what the outcomes were based on the engagement rate and the results. I think it's a great point. And I think you raised something that is really important. And that is that When we think of cognitive deficits, to my way of thinking at least, cognitive deficits are cognitive deficits, meaning that if you have cognitive deficits, problems with attention in the context of chemo fog or multiple sclerosis, and you have problems with attention in the context of long COVID, it's attention, right? And so there's a lot we know about treating attention. There's a lot we know about treating executive dysfunction. There's been this idea in COVID that there's nothing we know about how to rehabilitate the brains of COVID survivors because COVID is new. That's really a misnomer. The truth is there's a lot we know about neuroplasticity and it has never been more relevant than it is today. So I think far from having nothing to offer, in truth, we have a lot to offer to long COVID survivors with cognitive impairment. And we see that every day. 100%. And uh, again, kudos to you for your action bias. So for people that are out there right now, they're listening to this, maybe there are other uh, professionals in the field, neuropsychologists, uh, physiatrists, psychiatrists, speech pathologists. These could be also individuals who may have a loved one who has some of these cognitive impairments and is struggling to find answers. Uh, If you wouldn't mind, please, you know, Tell us a little bit more about SIBS and what SIBS is all about and the, the kind of Vanderbilt uh, Medical Center, and sure. also a little bit about more about the book and how we get it. Yeah, yeah sure. Thank you. So uh, the SIBS Center stands for the Critical Illness, Brain Dysfunction, and Survivorship Center. And um, this is a multidisciplinary, multi-specialty research and clinical resource. We have a website, www.icudelirium.org. And people can contact us through that website. We always respond and we can direct them if they're patients or family members trying to find a a local rehabilitation specialist. If they've got questions, they want to engage with me. We're glad to answer those. 
and we will. And I think the message that I would provide to people listening who are neuropsychologists, speech and language pathologists, whatever, the message is, we really need you. We badly need you to enlist in this, don't want to use a warfare metaphor too much, but enlist in this fight against long COVID. We need you and nobody can replace you, right? Like you're doing important Mm -hmm. things that Mm -hmm. only you can do and we need you. So I'm inviting them to recognize how important their role is. It's going to take a lot of people. It's going to take a village to solve this problem of cognitive impairment after the ICU and after long COVID. As it relates to my book, Clearing the Fog, the issue there, the impetus for the book really was that we were starting to lead support groups and a consistent theme we heard from long COVID survivors in the support groups was, nobody gets me, nobody understands what I'm going through. I feel intensely alone. And um, it seemed to me that there needed to be a resource that would address these folks where they were living, that would help them understand that they weren't alone. And not only that, that wouldn't be sort of ivory tower academic, but would be very practical in giving them a roadmap for, as the title says, thriving instead of surviving. Too often what I've seen in the context of chronic illness And it's a very sincerely held viewpoint, and I understand, but too often people have concluded that if this chronic illness doesn't go away, there's no way I can live a rich life. And my book invites people to think a little bit differently about that, you know, to think about the fact that you can have long COVID, whatever the permutations and manifestations are, you can work hard to address it. But even if it doesn't go away, you can still have this satisfying, value-driven life of meaning. And that's what we want to say to people at the end of the day. Don't create this dichotomy where long COVID has guaranteed you a horrible life. Let's realize that you can have a rich life even as you have challenges. That's probably your story. It's certainly my story. And it's what the book really emphasizes. Beautiful. I mean, I I couldn't think of a better way to kind of wrap up than that. You know, it's been an absolute pleasure, Jim, to have you on. Uh, For the listeners here today, if you've made it this far, thank you. Um, please, if you haven't already, please subscribe and download and share this episode. I really want to get Jim's message out there. It's so, so needed right now. Unfortunately, a lot of these sorts of conditions are seen as completely fixed conditions, meaning that there's not much we can do once we've reached a certain threshold. This simply, we do not know that to be true. That is what I'm hearing you, correct me if I'm wrong, Jim. That's what I'm hearing said here. And I think that's an optimistic view, but also a very truthful and informed optimistic view. So we've seen this through the advent of different medicines throughout time. And as long as we pool in the right sort of resources to better understand how to help, and that's why I'm committed. We're committed to work with you on this. And I say it here in front of this group, there should be an announcement coming relatively soon. We're going to do some things together to try to further support what you're doing. So I ask, share it, learn more, pick up the book, please. Uh, you'll be happy you did. And um, pick up a couple copies <laughs> and share them because this is a message that really needs to be shared out there today. Yeah, thank you. It's available on Amazon, actually. It comes out May 9th, which oddly enough is my birthday, um, <laughs> 55. So I wouldn't have been too happy about that otherwise. But <laughs> but um, thanks for inviting me. It's great to be with you today. And we're looking forward to joining arms in this important work. So thank you.
Wonderful. Thank you so much. And we'll see everybody on the next episode. Thank you so much for continuing to listen to the Brain Mastery podcast. We're super grateful for the community of supporters of this podcast. Again, this podcast was designed with an intention and an objective, and that was to share stories of rehabilitation, of recovery from brain injury, to really interview some of the leaders out there to provide more hope to community members. So thank you again for all of the support with that. If this episode resonated for you and had value for you, we just ask, please download and share it. Please also, if you wouldn't mind, rate the podcast. Those ratings really matter and help us to spread the message. If you're a clinical provider out there, meaning a physical therapist, an occupational therapist, or somebody who just works with people with brain injury and want to learn more about the BEARS platform, we've tried to make it as easy as possible for you to do so. Just go to www.abiwellness.com to learn more about how to get involved. Uh, Training is very accessible and we've tried to make it very, very easy for people to get access to this neurorehabilitation platform. Thank you again for your support and we'll see you on the next episode. The statements made regarding the BEARS platform and ABI Wellness have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. The efficacy of the BEARS platform has not been confirmed by FDA-approved research. The BEARS platform is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. All information presented here is not meant as a substitute for or alternative to information from healthcare practitioners. Please consult your healthcare professional about potential interactions or other possible complications before using any product. The Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act requires this notice.